The Immortal Game is a San Francisco Chronicle Book of the Year and is available in ebook and trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 11 Exit Wifey and Hello, My Fair Lady I went along Minna to 8th Street. My galaxy was parked across the way, under a diffuse cone of orange light projecting from a sodium vapor lamp. No cars moved on the street, and as I looked north towards the intersection at Mission, I could see the traffic light flashing red through the fog, like a distant ship signaling at sea. The only sign of life was a dark shape swathed in grimy blankets lying in a doorway. I went across the street to the Ford. I propped the base against the rear bumper and bent down to open the door. As I straightened up, I looked over the roof and saw two men get out of a white van parked further up on Minna. Both were tall with heavy builds, and both were dressed in white. One I recognized as the bouncer from the power station. The other was a black man with a shaved head that glistened eerily as he stepped into the light. I cursed under my breath. It seemed that there had been more than enough today without this. I said, I didn't think the diaper service ran this late. Haystrip, the bouncer, walked around the front of the car, pulled a gun from the small of his back, pointed it at me. Tell me you're happy to see me, he sneered. I turned to face him, noticing the square bandage taped to his forehead. I'm happy to see you. The words are right, but the conviction is lacking. We'll have to work on that. But first things first. Jimmy here is kind of curious about your big violin. How much do they go for? It's called a string bass. They cost anywhere from four grand on up. Haystrip nodded to the black man. That's quite an investment. I expect it'll take a lot of keyhole peeping to replace it. Jimmy went around to the back of the car and took hold of the bass by the neck. He levered it onto his back and swung it over his shoulders like a gigantic club. It hit the asphalt with a brittle, dry crunching sound. Jimmy let go of the neck and jumped in the air and came down on the bass with his big size 12s. There was more dry crunching, and Jimmy repeated the process until the zipper bag lost all definition and was nothing more than a sack full of kindling. That base had been made in Italy by a famous craftsman, Alberto Beglimini, and was virtually irreplaceable. You're getting gladder to see me by the minute, said Haystrip. I can see it in your eyes. He pushed the revolver forward until the cold, oily muzzle butted against my forehead. How's about I treat you to a headache like the one you gave me this afternoon? Ha, huh, big boy? He crowded in close, aching for me to react. Let's dispense with the tired theatrics, I said in a tight voice. It's only a half-hour show. Haystrip snorted. Okay, we'll cut to the chase. Put your fucking arms behind you. Then, to the black man. Come on, Jimmy. Jimmy came up behind me and snapped a pair of handcuffs roughly around my wrists. He grabbed each of my arms above the elbow and bent me back like a trussed pheasant. Try not to bleed too much, he said his hot breath tickling my ear. 
It's hell getting blood out of whites. White clothes, that is. He laughed sourly. Haystrip shoved the revolver back under his waistband. I might have caused some confusion about the purpose of our visit this evening. This isn't about you and me and our run-in at the power station. This is about Terry McCullough and you staying the fuck away from her like you were told. Tonight we busted up the big viola and now we're going to bust you up. But later, we'll be watching. We know what your game is. If this warning doesn't take, there won't be another. You go anywhere near Terry again and the Coast Guard will be fishing you out of the water beneath the Golden Gate Bridge. Assisted suicide. That's what it'll be. He stopped short and drew in his breath. He leaned forward, face glistening with sweat. Now give us a witty comeback, Reardon. The bright repartee. We wouldn't expect anything less of you. I had barely formed a word in my mouth when Haystrip took a mincing step forward and landed a sharp jab to my cheek. My head snapped back and butted into Jimmy's forehead. Shit, he yelped. Watch it, Chuck. Haystrip stepped in close and began to work over my midsection. He knew what he was doing. I tensed my muscles to protect my gut, but Haystrip hit me square under the breastbone with a punishing shot, and I lost all control. The blows came fast and hard then, relentlessly, inexorably. Soon I couldn't distinguish between them, and all I knew was a haze of pain and nausea and the feeling of not being able to breathe. Gradually I became aware that Haystrip had stopped, and I slumped against Jimmy's arms, head lolling, mouth gaping for air. I heard Haystrip's voice from far away, like I was standing at the end of a tunnel. How much would you pay for a busted fiddle and a beat-up private eye? Two cents? A nickel? But wait, there's more. I sensed, rather than saw, a blur of motion, and an explosion of pain radiated out from my groin. Jimmy released my arms, and I poured onto the ground, too weak and battered even to curl up. A busted fiddle, a beat-up private eye, and a bruised pair of gonads, said the faraway voice. But wait, there's still more. Something cold and hard hit me on the back of the head. I released my clutch on consciousness and went swirling down into the blackness. The first thing I saw was a gold lame pump, then its mate, then the shapely ankles that went with them, sheathed in fishnet stockings. I thought maybe I'd died and gone to heaven. Then I heard, August, wake up, in a distinctly male voice, and I knew I'd gone to hell. As near as I could figure, I was lying on my side in a dank alley under a street lamp. My mouth tasted like a used dress shield. My head felt like it had been mined for rocks, and the way my groin felt, I was riding for a spot on the Vienna Boys Choir. I rolled over on my back and looked up at the owner of the pumps. She, or more accurately, he, was a shapely blonde wearing a long-sleeved gold lame gown that was form-fitting from the waist up, but puffed out in a fantastic crinkly bell from the waist down. August, he said. It's me, Chris Duckworth. What are you doing here? Damn you, I croaked. I paid my dues to get here, wherever this is. Don't go questioning me about my business. What in the hell are you doing here? Duckworth squatted beside me on his high heels, the material from his gown crinkling around him in a big circle. Yeesh, you're grumpy when you wake up. And will you look at what this is doing to my dress? He yanked the fabric of the skirt over his knees and folded it in a wad on his lap. 
You're just going to have to be a gentleman and refrain from looking up at my crotch. It's going to take every ounce of willpower, I said, and squeezed my eyes shut, fighting the pain. Look, I'm not in too good a shape right now, so let's keep it simple. Where are we, what time is it, and how did I get here? We're in an alleyway off 9th, about a block from Mission. My lady Timex is in the shop, but I guess it's about 3.30. I did the late show at the Stigmata tonight. I couldn't catch a cab at Harrison, and I figured I'd have better luck if I walked up to Mission or Market. All right, I'm with you so far. Everything clear and sensible. Next question. How did you spot me? It was hard not to, August. The sidewalk is littered with bits of a broken cello. String bass, I interrupted. Whatever. The trail led up the alley a short way and you were at the end of it. Now can I ask what you're doing here? In a minute. Did you see anyone else nearby? Two big guys dressed in white, for instance? No, a girl could hardly have missed something like that. I opened my eyes and Duckworth gave me a broad wink. Believe me, Chris, I said. Those guys are definitely not your type. I briefly recounted what had happened. My God, said Duckworth, that's horrible. You should go to the police or the hospital. In fact, we should go to the hospital right now. I rolled over on one arm and struggled to sit upright. My head whirled like a carnival ride, and my dinner threatened to rejoin its homeland. No, I said. No hospitals and no cops. Just help me get up to my car. I'll deal with Mr. Haystrep when the time comes. August, said Duckworth in a strained voice, glancing behind me. What? There's a note on your back. What's it say? August, it's stapled to your back. Now that I thought about it, there was a place between my shoulder blades that felt stiff and sore. But comparing that pain to the pain for my other injuries was like comparing a chirping parakeet to a screaming eagle. I said, pull out the staple. I can't, said Duckworth. I can't do that. We're not talking about a Comanche arrow here. It's just a staple. Now pull it out. I'll break my nail. Exasperated, I flung my hand over my shoulder and strained to reach the note. I grasped the top of the paper and gave it a sharp yank. The staple pulled out, smarting like hell. The note was written in ballpoint pen and block letters on a piece of lined notebook paper. There was a blood stain at the top where the staple had been. It said, Reardon, I wonder how you'll look on the deck of the Coast Guard cutter with your mouth full of sand. Next time this note will say, Goodbye, cruel world. I crumpled the paper into a ball and threw it away from me. Come on, I said. Help me to my car. Duckworth straightened and put his hands under my arms to pull me up. I got to my feet, but fell back against him and nearly toppled us both. Whoa, said Duckworth. You weigh a ton. We're never going to make it to your car, much less drive it. Yes, I will, I said stubbornly. But black spots swam in front of my eyes as I said the words. I hunched over to keep from passing out. Yeah, and I was Judy Garland in my prior life, said Duckworth. He steered me over to the alley wall. Lean against this and I'll get us a cab. Duckworth went away and I occupied my time by alternately sweating, tingling all over, and counting the holes in the wingtip pattern on my shoes. I did some lip biting, too. Carbon atoms on a distant planet rearranged themselves into DNA. Microorganisms formed, grew backbones, swam around the ocean, mutated into amphibians, and crawled onto dry land. And finally a cab appeared at the mouth of the alley.
I straightened up and stumbled over to the car with all the casual insouciance of the Frankenstein monster taking his first steps. Duckworth jumped out, tugged nervously at his preposterous gown, and held the door open while I fell into the back seat like it was flopping into a rowboat in stormy seas. The driver looked back at us after Duckworth sat down and said, You people make me sick. I'm only taking this fare because there's no other calls. Duckworth cursed and looked down at the driver's photo ID. You're taking this fare, Mr. Lester P. Knoll, hydroencephaloid, homophobe, esquire, because it's the goddamn law. Now shut up or I'm reporting you to the taxi commission. Right on, honey, I said weakly, and gave the driver my address. As we pulled away from the curb, I caught a glimpse of a sign across the street that asked, Are you an organ and tissue donor? Given my present state of health, it seemed an extraordinarily apt question. We drove in silence to my building. Duckworth paid the fare with bills he took from a tiny clutch purse and helped me to the entrance. I fumbled with the keys until he got impatient and grabbed them from my hands and opened the door. We climbed the stairs to the fourth floor the way overweight tourists from the Bronx would hike out of the Grand Canyon, sweating, breathing hard, resting at every opportunity, and arguing the whole way. Duckworth used the keys again to open my apartment, and I went straight to the liquor cabinet. I downed three shots of bourbon rapid fire and dropped into bed. I went under almost immediately, but I have a vague memory of Duckworth pulling off my shoes and covering me with a blanket. You have been listening to The Immortal Game, a San Francisco Chronicle Book of the Year. Find it in ebook and trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. <laughs>